growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Whether we realize or not, whether we understand it or not, there is deception, ladies and gentlemen, in this world. Bernie Madoff. Most of us would recognize that name as the man responsible for stealing more than $50 billion. Through an elaborate scheme and clever deception, Madoff carried out his con on unsuspecting investors. It's considered the greatest ripoff in American history. But what if I told you that there is a greater con artist than even Bernie Madoff? This master of deception has been conning people since the very beginning, and billions of people are still falling for his cons. This deceptive con that is being perpetrated upon people today and it's the idea that you know there's really no evidence that God even exists. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. Last week we began a brand new series entitled Deceptive Cons. Over the next several weeks we're going to take a look at some of the cons that Satan has been using against people to steal something from them that is far more valuable than money. I'm talking about a personal relationship with God. Last week, we kicked off the series with one of the biggest cons of all, the lie that says there's really no evidence that God even exists. Last week, Pastor Clay introduced the series and looked at one of the arguments for the existence of God, namely the explanation for the origin of the universe. The universe had a beginning. It cannot have caused itself because nothing that comes into existence can cause itself, and that cause must be something or someone of immense power, immense intelligence, and immense creativity. God. Well, today, Pastor Clay is going to continue to look at arguments that present evidence that belief in God is not only possible, it's actually the most rational belief that we can have. Now, here's Pastor Clay. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we understand it or not, there is deception, ladies and gentlemen, in this world. And billions of people are being deceived with different deceptions. And we're going to look at several of them over the next several weeks. But we started last week uh, with, with this deception that we're still working on this week because it seems like the logical place uh, to, to start. This deceptive con that is being perpetrated upon people today. And it's, and it's the idea that, you know, there's really no evidence that God even exists. That's usually the way you'll, have it, you'll hear it. In some, some form or fashion, it'll be something like that. You know, there's really no evidence that God even exists. Well, that seemed like a logical place for, for us to start. And so we began last week. We kicked off this series, and uh, there was a lengthy introduction. I know there was as I was kind of setting the table for this uh, series. And then we looked at really only one argument. I'm, that's what I'm presenting. It's some arguments that I believe are evidence for the existence of God. And before we do, let me say this again. Uh, if, you, if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message where I explained this a little more. But I, I want to make this statement again. It's important that we understand uh, that God has no desire to prove himself. That is not a difficult thing for God to do if he actually desired to do that. God has no desire to prove himself, but God has every desire to reveal himself to individuals who are open, who are saying, okay, I, I don't know about, I don't know whether God is or isn't. I don't know if he's real or not. I don't know if he's in the world or not. I, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing that I hear about, but I'm here. I'm open. I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. That is a person who is not only, not only is their mind open, but here's the, here's the critical part. Their heart is open, and that's a person that God can work with. So last week, uh, just real quickly to review, the one argument that I uh, raised was the cosmological argument. This is also known as the first cause 
argument. Some of you may be uh, familiar with it, but the first cause argument basically is this. The universe is not eternal. The universe had a, had a beginning. Because the universe had a beginning, the universe must have had a cause. Because nothing that comes into existence can come into existence without a cause. That's, that's an established fact. It, nothing can come into existence without a cause. And that thing that comes into existence cannot cause itself. So whatever caused the universe to come into existence must be outside of the universe. It must be beyond, outside of the universe. Because the universe, something that was caused, cannot cause itself. Are you all with me? <laughs> I'm getting a lot of like, woo, deer in the headlights look this morning. And that's, this is, so, so it cannot have caused itself because nothing that comes into existence can cause itself. It did come into existence, so it was caused. That cause must be outside of the universe, and that cause must be some, something or someone of immense power, immense intelligence, and immense creativity. Let's see, who, who fits that? Yeah, God. God. So that, that's the cosmological argument. Uh, again, I go in a little more detail maybe last week. You can go back and listen to it if you want. That's the cosmological argument. All right, you ready for the second argument? Say, yes, I'm ready. Fire it up. Second argument. I don't need it. I already believe that God exists, or I don't believe God exists, or I'm somewhere in between, wherever you are. We're just looking at it. All right, second argument uh, that we want to look at today is what's known as the teleological argument. The teleological argument. Uh, this argument is also uh, sometimes referred to as the design argument, and it is also sometimes uh, referred to or, or illustrated by what's called the watchmaker argument. Those, it's kind of all three names for that. The teleological argument is an argument based on uh, the orderliness, the complexity, and the design in the universe. In other words... The universe, and, and I don't know of anybody that would argue about this, the universe is an incredibly complex place. Uh, there is an amazing amount of orderliness to it. And so the question has to be asked, why is that? Why would the universe be complex? Why would the universe be orderly? Why would the universe be des- have the appearance of design if the universe came into existence as, as atheists claim? If the universe came into existence by purely random chance, wouldn't you expect just the opposite? If the world came into existence by by just total random chance, wouldn't you expect to see disorder? Wouldn't you expect to see chaos? Wouldn't you expect to see... And yet we find totally the opposite in our universe. Why is that? Why do we have such complexity? Why do we have what appears to be such design? In the world around us. That is basically the teleological argument. Now, the teleological argument was kind of, uh, I mean, it existed before this guy came along, but it was kind of brought to the forefront, or maybe it was put in, in terms where people could understand uh, by, by a guy named William Paley. William Paley came along and he said, listen, if you were, and I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, but he said, listen, if you, were, if you were in your backyard and you were digging and you dug up a watch, and I think Paley said pocket watch, uh, but if you, if you were digging in your backyard one day and you dug up a watch, if you looked at that watch, you, you would not say, wow, look at this thing. L- look at the, if you took the back off and all this stuff, look, look at the intricacy. L- look at the complexity. Look at how all these different parts fit together and, and operate uh, perfectly for this thing to, 
to, to keep this, this time for this dial to go around like that. Look at the beauty of it. This thing is amazing. I wonder how this thing came into being. You simply would not think that. No one would think that. No one of any sense of sanity about them at all. They would automatically, you and I would automatically know that this instrument was designed. That this instrument was created. That this instrument, that this watch had a watchmaker. And you you would know that. Why would you know that? Because of the empirical evidence. Because of what you can see, because of what you can touch, because of what you can observe in this watch, it, it just, you just know that didn't just happen. Somebody sat down one day and said, hmm, I think I'm going to put this thing together. And they drew out plans and they, you know, go, go all the way back to whenever the first watch was made, whatever. Whoever was around did all that. But you would know it was designed. Now, let me say this uh, in fairness. The, uh, those that, that uh, hold to, to an atheistic position... Respond to the watchmaker argument um, by saying, well, that's a stupid argument because a watch is made of, of inanimate um, materials. Uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not made from life-giving materials, and so there's no way, obviously, that it could ever become a, a complex life uh, form. And so that's a stupid argument. When, when an atheist raises that question, they're missing the point of the argument. The point of the argument, ladies and gentlemen, is that the, the empirical evidence shouts at you and says, somebody made this. Somebody designed this. In other words, it is the complexity of it. It is the orderliness of it. It is the design of it. Not what the material is made of or not made of, but the fact that it is of such complex nature that says to you, this thing had to be designed. There had to be a watchmaker. Are you with me? That is the watchmaker argument. That is the teleological argument. That is the argument from design. And there, there are so many different examples that we could look at, but let's just look at uh, just uh, uh, two or three today, okay? Uh, let me just give you two or three uh, uh, examples of the complexity, the design, the orderliness of the universe in which we live. Let's start uh, with this one. How about the orderliness of our solar system? Let's just start there. How about if we just start with one planet in our solar system? You and I know it as home, the earth, most of y'all know this from, from middle school science class. But did you know if the earth were even, relatively speaking, talking about distance between us and the sun, if the earth were only slightly closer to the sun, we would all burn up. There would be no possibility of life on this planet. If we were only slightly further away from the sun, every one of us would, would freeze to death. The earth keeps a perfect distance from the sun. And by the way, it does that while traveling 67,000 miles per hour in its orbit around the sun. That's how fast you and I are moving right now. And it it keeps this perfect orbit. The earth is the only known planet, and I understand it's a vast universe out there, and there's lots to learn, but I'm just telling you, in, in, in hundreds of years of science, the earth is the only known planet that has the perfect mixture of gases to support plant animal and human life. The only one. How about, how, about the, uh, how about our moon? The moon is the perfect size and distance from the earth to, uh, to inflict its gravitational pull on our planet so that it causes 
our oceans to, to, to shift, to move, so that, so that stagnation doesn't take place in those waters, but at the same time, hold those waters in their place so that they do not overrun our land masses. Perfect size, perfect distance for the perfect gravitational pull. And I, listen, I'm not, all I'm saying is, if you look at that and, and, you, and you look at the, the human, I mean the earth, and you say, which makes more sense? Is it really more rational to think, good thing the earth stopped where it did, Good thing the gas is... And I'm, I'm really, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying... If, okay, let's look at this. So, so just the complexity of our solar system is an amazing thing. And I just pick, you know, just Earth, but just so much about it. How about, here's another one. How about the complexity of the human brain? The orderness of the universe, of our solar system. How about the complexity of the human brain? Now, some people would argue that some of us have less complexity in our brain than others. But... That, that being said, the human brain processes an amazing, amazing amount of data every second of your life. Think about it. And I know we, we don't even think about it, right? It just happens. But all of the colors, all of the objects that you see, simultaneously, your brain takes all of those in and processes it. Everything, the, the, the pressure of your feet against the floor. By the way, my wife and I have been married 35 years. 35 years. It's been, well, thank you. Thank you. None of, uh, all the applause goes to her, I can assure you. But 35 years. You think you know somebody after 35 years. But we're always learning stuff, right? Marriage. Some of y'all have been married a while. You, some of y'all, they're getting ready to get married or thinking about getting married or just getting married. <laughs> 30, but, but the other day, the other day, my wife says to me, you stomp when you walk. After 35 years, this is a new revelation to me. But she said, and she said it in a nice way. She didn't say it that way. I, I, that was, but she said, baby, you stomp when you walk. You're just like, I, I had never known this before. This was, this, so now I'm still trying to learn how to think about it, but I'm like a ninja I'm walking around, <laughs> walking around, trying to, you know. But, but, but your brain takes that in. Your brain takes in, your brain takes in uh, the, the, the smells that, that, you, that you smell around you. Your brain uh, takes in the, the texture of an object that you, that you hold in your hand. All of this information simultaneously coming to you. Besides all of that, your brain is also uh, dealing with your emotions and your thoughts and your memories. By, besides that, it's dealing with the... With the the motor skills, if you will, it's, it's dealing with eyelid movement and breathing patterns and, and, uh, and hunger and, and muscle movements of your body. The human brain processes more than a million pieces of data per second. And not only that, not only is it taking all of that data in, but the human brain knows how to process that data so the, the not-so-important stuff gets pushed off a little bit. <laughs> I'm thinking about like conversation you're going to have. No, never mind. The, the human, human brain, it processes the stuff that's not quite as important from the stuff that is important, which then allows you, that's what allows you to focus. That's what allows you to think and to act. It's probably, quite honestly, I was thinking about this, it's probably what keeps us from going insane. Could you imagine if you had no filter and all that data was just pouring in simultaneously into you, more than a million pieces of data per second? It is an amazing thing. 
The human brain is more complex and more powerful, ladies and gentlemen, than the most complex and the most powerful computer on this earth. And that computer certainly had a designer, probably a whole team of designers, over a period of years designing that computer. All, all, I'm saying, all I'm asking is to use that brain and to think for a moment, which really is the, could this, whatever degree you think I have or that you have, could, could, can it really be explained by pure random processes, pure random chance, end up with, with this thing that is able to, to laugh and cry and interact with others and build relationships and, and process information and appreciate the, the, the beauty of a, of a little bird. And it, it's, it's the teleological argument. There's too much design. There's too much complexity to just think that random chance could cause this. Let's look at one more example. How about DNA? How about DNA? Y'all were all wondering about DNA anyway, weren't you? Yeah. Now, I don't want to turn this whole thing into a science lesson today, but uh, some of you are aware that, um, that a computer uh, program is made up of a, of a series, a uh, sequence of, of number, of, one, of uh, ones and zeros, right? Y'all all knew that, right? <laughs> like one, one, zero, 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 one, one, zero, one, you know, on, on, however many they're supposed to be. And uh, the, the, the order in which those ones and zeros are laid out tells the computer what to do. It, it's the program that tells what to do, right? Am I, am I right about that, you computer people? It tells it what to do. Much like that computer, the human body, particularly the human cell, has a series of chemical um, ingredients, and I don't know what you'd call it, chemical components in, in each human cell. Uh, four uh, chemicals that scientists are, as abbreviate as uh, uh, A, T, G, and C. There are three billion of these letters in every human cell. Every human cell, three billion of them, and in the same way we can all... Uh, uh, program our phone to go off an alarm at a certain time or to have a certain ringtone or, or, or whatever else. In the same way, these chemical components in a particular order tell the human body how to function, how to develop, how to grow. Three billion in every cell. Are you ready? It is estimated that there are between 80 and 100 trillion cells in the human body. I didn't bring my calculator today. If y'all want to do the math, y'all can do it. But that's a lot. That's a big number. And all I'm saying is, does random chance explain that? Or does a designer explain that? A designer of immense power, immense intelligence, immense creativity. Granted, it would take someone of that level or something of that level. If You don't even want to attribute it to God at this point to create something of such immense complexity and design in our creation. Yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, the word design, I got to think about this last night. I was going over my mess and I was praying, and I just got to think about the word design. I use it all the time, especially in this, in this thing about the existence of God's design. And, and so I, I went back and kind of looked at the root of the, of the word design. The word design comes from the Latin uh, designare. The prefix de or de meaning out, signare, meaning to mark. Your signature is, is you're making your mark. So design essentially means to mark out, to 
put out a sign. Isn't that interesting? Now think about that in regards to going back to Romans that we looked at last week, Romans chapter 1. And though they, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. He has made signs there. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Think about this. I, 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 I never thought of it this way, but after looking that up, and I was just thinking, I was just praying and praising God. I was saying, God, God, you're signing your signature across the heavens. You're signing your signature in the stars. You're signing your signature in the creation of, of your universe, God, so that everyone can know who it is that did this thing. That's the teleological argument, the argument from complexity, from design, from order. Okay, let's look at another one. What time is it? Okay, uh, let's talk about the religious nature of man argument. Now, I'm sure this argument has a a more official name. That's just what I call it. That's what I came up with. That's what I'm calling it. It's a religious nature of man argument. All right? The argument goes like this. The world is an incurably religious place. Do you guys know that? I mean, I know we live in America, and we know the statistics of the number of people that aren't in church and all that kind of stuff. I, I know that. But, but keep this in mind, first off. There, there's 300 million people in the United States. There are seven billion people on this planet. So let's kind of keep America in perspective, okay? But the world is an incredibly religious place. Statistically speaking, although they, they seem to get a lot of the press these days, but statistically speaking, only about 2% of the world's population professes no belief in, in any type of God whatsoever. Out of seven billion people, only 2% profess no belief in God whatsoever. And there is no tribe, listen to me now, there is no tribe, no people group, no nation in the history of the world that has ever been discovered that did not worship something. Now, uh, not, not all cultures, not all people groups, not all individuals uh, worship or believe in the same uh, God that, that I do or perhaps that you do. Some, some are, are more polytheistic and believe in multiple gods. Some are monotheistic and, and believe in only, only one God, but their ideas about God may be different. Some are pantheistic and think that God is kind of in nature. So uh, the point of this argument is not who's right and who's wrong about their understanding of God. That'll be another deceptive con that we'll get to a little later on. But the point of this argument is simply this. The world is religious. The world has this incurable desire to worship something. And the question has to be asked, why? Why is that? Think about that for a moment. Did you know that? Do you know, I mean, I'm sure you know it, but you just, I don't know if you thought about it before. No other animal, no other creature on the face of the earth worships anything. Only man worships mankind. Why, why is that? Does man have a worship gene? Do we have a religion gene? And even if we do, where did it come from? Why do we worship? What, what is this? Why is there this concept of God? Why would man even begin with that concept that God is or that God exists or that I need to bow down and worship God? Now, again, in fairness, the secular humanist says that man invented the idea of God because of his, his need, because of his, his failure to understand at that time, his failure to understand uh, the world in which he existed. Man didn't understand wind. Man didn't understand lightning. Man didn't understand fire. 
And so man invented the idea of God uh, to, as a coping mechanism to help, us feel, to help us feel safer, more secure. Okay, let me get this straight now. I'm just, just saying. <laughs> let me get this straight. So on a planet that, that uh, a secular humanist would say uh, that is purely naturalistic, on a planet that has, has uh, no need of God and no evidence of God, so they say, where natural man exists in a purely natural uh, habitat, that man suddenly makes the intellectual leap to supernatural. And listen, I don't, I'm, I'm honestly, I, I don't know if it's just me or not, but I don't, I still don't get it. I don't understand what would cause man to make this leap. If, if everything is natural, if everything can be explained naturally, if there's only natural uh, causes and all this stuff around it, why would he make this sudden leap and say, oh, uh, there's a, there's a sky god, and he made... I don't understand. I really don't. Unless, unless the idea of God were there from the very beginning. That, that, that's the only way I can, I can think that he would do it. Oh, and, and another thing. Even if you wanted to say that man invented the idea of God when we didn't understand wind or lightning or fire or, or whatever, we didn't, that man invented that, well, how do we explain the fact that Man still believes in God. That man is still incurably religious. We know what causes lightning. We know what causes the wind. We know what makes up what causes fire. But, but man still worships. Man still seeks this, this desire, this relationship, this understanding of, of this creator, God. Why, why is that? That's, that's this argument. That's the point of this argument is that you just, you can't, you have to be able to explain why would we even come up with the idea of God? Why is man incurably religious? Now, people do make choices to decide they don't want to believe in a God. There are people that make those choices that they don't want to believe in God. Uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a free will choice that each person makes. The point is, in the history of mankind, there's never been a, 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 a from, from the Amazon rainforest to Antarctica, from on every continent of this planet, in every people group, in every tribe, there is, there is this desire, this impulse to worship. And again, I'll go back to Romans chapter 1, because that which is known about God is evident within them. See what, what Paul's saying? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen from the very beginning. They, they didn't know what, what, what lightning was, came from or why, why it did that. Maybe they, maybe they thought God was mad, but they still somehow knew it was God. Have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That's, that's the basic, curably religious nature of man. All right. Okay. How about another one? How about one more? One, one more argument. How about the smart people argument? <laughs> I'm sorry, clearly I'm not one of those people because I'm, I'm sure there's some official name for this argument. I'm sure it exists out there. Uh, I didn't, and I'm sure it has some real name, but that's what I'm calling it. It's the smart people argument. Now, listen to me. The point of this argument is not to say that there are more smart people that believe in God than there are smart people that don't believe in God. That's not the point of this argument. There are plenty of highly intelligent people who have made a decision to say that God does not exist and everything can be explained away naturally, despite some of the arguments we've looked at. So th- there are intelligent people that do not believe in the, in the existence of, of God. That, that's not my argument. 
my argument is, is that belief in God is not void of scientific, empirical evidence, and that there are highly intelligent people through history who have believed in God. They weren't superstitious. They weren't, you know, boogeyman. They, they actually believed in God. And I want to give you, I've got about a dozen. We'll see if we get to them all. But I just want to give you, some of you, again, will, you'll recognize many of these names, but maybe you just didn't know that they were, that they were some of these some of these people you're going to look at were very strong, committed followers of Jesus, committed Christians. Some were nominal in their belief. Some were at best deistic. In other words, they may not hold to the, to the, to the view of personal God like is revealed in Scripture, but, but the idea of God, the belief in this supernatural entity, they, they did believe in. So you've got a wide spectrum of some of these people, but the point is these people believed in God. All right, let's start, uh, let's start with Nicholas Copernicus. You guys remember Copernicus? Come on, Copernicus. Let's hear it for Copernicus. <laughs> Copernicus. Copernicus was the Polish astronomer who put forward the first mathematically based system of planets going around the sun. That was Copernicus. All right, how about uh, Sir Francis Bacon? Y'all heard of him? Bacon was, that was, that was his name, okay? He's not, Bacon was a philosopher who is known for establishing the scientific method. That's what Francis Bacon established. You see, you see what I'm saying here? That, that, Religion is not religion and science is science and never those two shall meet. That's ridiculous. Bacon was a philosopher who was known for establishing the scientific method of inquiry based on experimentation and inductive reasoning. That, that what every scientist use, uses today. That was Sir Francis Bacon. Uh, René Descartes was a French mathematician and scientist and philosopher who's been called the father of modern philosophy. I always wondered who was the father of modern philosophy. Now you know. René Descartes and Francis Bacon are generally regarded as the key figures of the development of the scientific methodology. Both had systems which God was important and both seemed more devout than the average for their era. Two main dudes. All right. Uh, Blaise Pascal. Pascal was a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, writer, and theologian. In mathematics, he published a treatise on the subject of projective geometry and established the foundation for probability theory. Pascal invented a mechanical calculator and established the principles of vacuums and the pressure of air. Pretty smart dude. Isaac Newton, y'all heard of him? Oh, all right, good. In optics, mechanics, and mathematics, Newton was a figure of undisputed genius and innovation. In all his science, including chemistry, he saw mathematics and numbers as central. What is less well known is that he was devoutly religious and saw numbers as involved in understanding God's plan for history from the Bible. Uh, he did a considerable work on biblical numerology. He, 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 in my opinion, he got a little off on that, but that, that's beside the point. Um, uh, he, he thought theology was very important. In a system of physics, God was essential. Listen, God was essential. For Isaac Newton, God was essential to the nature and absoluteness of space. Okay, uh, who we got next? Uh, Robert Boyle. Uh, one of the founders and key early members of the Royal Society, Boyle gave his name to Boyle's Law for Gases, also wrote an important work on chemistry. In 1690, he developed his theological views in the Christian uh, uh, virtuoso, which he wrote to show that the study of nature was a central religious duty. But ha a lot of you in school, weren't you taught just the opposite? Oh no, you know, that's religion. Boyle wrote against atheists in his day and was clearly much more devoutly Christian than the average in his era. 
Michael Faraday, some of you might recognize that name. He was the son of a blacksmith who became one of the greatest scientists of the 19th century. His work on electricity and magnetism not only revolutionized physics, but also led to much of our lifestyles today, which depends on them. Faraday was devoutly Christian. Devoutly Christian. Um, uh, Gregor Mendel. Mendel was the first to lay the mathematical foundations of genetics in what came to be called Mendelianism. He began his research in 1856, three years before Darwin published his Origin of Species, in the garden of the monastery in which he was a monk. Mendel was elected abbot of his monastery in 1868. Scientist? Yes. Believer in God? Yes. Who we got? William, William Thompson Kelvin uh, was foremost among the small group of British scientists who helped to lay the foundation for modern physics. His work covered many areas of physics, and he was said to have more letters after his name than anyone else in the Commonwealth since he received numerous honorary degrees from European universities which recognized the value of his work. He was a very committed Christian who was certainly more religious than the average for his era. Interestingly, his fellow physicists, George Gabriel Stokes and uh, James Clerk Maxwell, were also men of deep Christian commitment in an era when many, because this is right when Darwin's theory is coming out and, and everybody's, you know, like, oh, oh, we. Uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica says Maxwell is regarded by most modern physicists as the scientist of the 19th century who had the greatest influence on the 20th century. Uh, he is ranked with Sir Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein for the fundamental nature of his contributions. That's, that's pretty high company in the scientific uh, community. Okay, here we go. Max Planck. Uh, made many contributions to, f- to physics, was best known for quantum theory, which revolutionized our understanding of the atomic and subatomic world. In 1937 lecture, Planck expressed the view that God is everywhere present and held that the holiness of the unintelligible Godhead is conveyed by the holiness of symbols. You know what he's saying? He, he's saying the same thing Paul is saying in Romans 1. You, it's, it's right there. You can see it. It's all around you. He just said it like a scientific dude would say it. <laughs> Albert Einstein, y'all heard of him? Okay, now make sure you understand. And I think I've got it in here somewhere else, so I'll just read it. Einstein is probably the best known and most highly revered scientist of the 20th century, associated with major revolutions in our thinking about time, gravity, and the conversion of matter to energy, equals MC square, although never coming to a belief in a personal God. So he did not believe in, in the God that I believe in. He recognized the impossibility of a non-created universe. And the Encyclopedia Britannica says of him, firmly denying atheism, Einstein expressed a belief in Spinoza's God, that's... Anyway, Spinoza's God who reveals himself in the harmony of what exists. This actually motivated his interest in science as he once remarked to a young physicist, I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Let me give you one more. We've kind of been working our way through, through the scientific era since the time of enlightenment, looking at several. I think you get the point of where we're going, but let me show you one more. This is a, a contemporary uh, geneticist, uh, m- medical doctor who was interviewed by CNN. Watch this. Why? You were not a believer early in your life. Why? It was the way I was raised. I was raised in this uh, remarkable environment by a drama professor, father, and a playwright mother, uh, surrounded by theater, music, the arts. Uh, They were doing the 60s thing, except it wasn't quite the 60s yet. And I was exposed to all kinds of fascinating ways to learn about life and the world and uh, ideas. Uh, But faith was not really on the list of things that were talked about. It wasn't that faith was put down or considered... Uh, inappropriate for other people. 
it just didn't sort of enter the conversation in my childhood. Did it exist in your mind as a question? Oh, I had glimmers of something, some longing outside of myself, some sense that maybe there was a God up there that I might be able to reach out to. What brought you as an adult then to faith? Well, first, as an adult, I walked very far away from faith. I went from being sort of well, vaguely interested, but not really, uh, to becoming an atheist. Uh, as a scientist studying physical chemistry, quantum mechanics, I became convinced that everything about the universe could be described by equations. So what changed that for you? Well, I changed my life plan from physical science to medicine. And when I went to medical school, the ideas about death and dying, which had been rather hypothetical, became very real. You can't be in that environment, sitting at the bedside of people who are facing the end of their lives without having it affect you. Did you set out to find God or to find that there was no God? I set out to prove that my atheist position was correct. I set out to try to find out what really were the rigorous arguments that I assumed were there that would rule out any possibility of God for a thinking person. You must have found many of them. <laughs> I found some. Many of them were ones I had cooked up in my own mind. But the harder I looked at them, the flimsier they were. All of us human beings have a sense that there is such a thing as right and there's such a thing as wrong. What a curious thing. Where does that come from? If you were looking for evidence of a God who cares about human beings, not just a God who started the universe in motion and then wandered off somewhere else, wouldn't this be an interesting place to find him? Basically as something written within our hearts, universally in humankind, making us different from other species, and calling us to be good and holy, pointing us as a signpost, if you will, towards something outside ourselves that is much more good and much more holy than we can imagine. Did you have at some point a born-again experience? When people talked to me about born again, I didn't know what they were really referring to when I was growing up. But yes, I did have a moment where I became a believer. I had struggled for two years with this debate within myself, gradually coming to the conclusion that belief in God was the most plausible of the choices, but that it couldn't be proved. And after many months of struggling with whether to make that leap, uh, on a beautiful fall day, hiking in the northwest with my mind a little more clear than usual because there were not the usual distractions, I felt I could no longer resist. And I became a believer that day uh, in the sunshine, in the shadow of the Cascade Mountains. Isn't it interesting that for Dr. Collins, that moment came when he was surrounded by what Paul talks about in Romans 1, this evidence that is incontrovertible that points to a God of amazing intelligence, design, creativity, beauty. This is the God that we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. This is the God who through his handiwork, I believe, is shouting, I'm here. I love you. I desire a relationship with you. Won't you please come and let me help you discover what it is to know me. Thanks, Pastor. As you heard today, the arguments for the existence of God are hard to ignore. 
As Pastor Clay reminded us, God has no desire to prove himself, but God has every desire to reveal himself to those who are open to a relationship with him and open to where the evidence will take them. Atheism is still a small percentage of the people in our culture, but it's growing every day. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to know why we believe what we believe and then confront the deceptions that are conning people out of what God desires for them. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.